Hello and welcome to Game and Gadget podcast number 26. I'm your host, James Woodcock, and of course you can find many more of our podcasts over at pixelrefresh.com. We're on all the popular podcasting audio solutions like Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple, whoever, whoever's got one, it's probably on there. So just search for it and find the Game and Gadget podcast. But of course, I am joined by my co-host, Tony Warner. Thank you for joining me again, Tony. Nice to be here, thank you. And becoming more and more of a regular visitor to the Game and Gadget podcast, I also have Steve Ince. Welcome back, Steve. Hi, it's uh, good of you to invite me again. Absolute pleasure to have you here, Steve. So, it's been quite a while since we've recorded a podcast, so we'll definitely make the most of this time together. So I'll dive in straight away if I may, gents, and talk about one of my latest retro acquisitions, which came out of the blue. So I was in this situation where my wife didn't know what to get me for Christmas. And I didn't know what I would want either. So I got to the point of how many slippers can you get? How many socks can you have? We're not going to go down this route. I just said, hold off, love, hold off. And we'll see what comes up in the crystal ball of James's Christmas gift buying ideas. And lo and behold, after Christmas, after being a patient person, a colleague from work said, my stepdad has a retro console, which he's thinking of getting rid of. And I thought of you because of your retro inclinations. I said, well, thank you very much. What is it? And he says, it's an Intellivision. And to be honest, I'd heard of the Intellivision, not really seen them in action or ever, certainly never owned one and knew very little about it. And a few pennies later, thanks to my wife, I am now the owner of an Intellivision. You can probably see it over my shoulder. And it's from, from the UK anyway. It would be around the very early 80s, which is ironically where I'd be born as well. So kind of rivaling the area of the Atari 2600, that sort of thing. But what's quite novel about it is it came with quite a few games, all boxed, such as this one. I've got a Star Wars game behind me as well. But what this also came with is a voice synthesizer box, which you would plug in. Now, unfortunately, I've not had time to actually turn this on and experiment with it yet, but I'm I'm so excited to see what on earth a voice synthesizer from the early 80s will sound like on a console. Apparently, only a few games supported it, but luckily, I have one of those games and the voice synthesis module, and I have no idea how rare that is, but it was, I think it was about £80 back then. So it wasn't a small acquisition. So to have the Intellivision with one of those and at least one game that supports it, I think it is going to be quite a fun thing. And the game I'm holding right now is something called B-17 Bomber. And, of course, the controllers move away from your Xbox controllers and all these dual analog sticks and things like that. This is the era when you could put an inlay over the controller buttons and it would be like your guide of what button you need to press. So forget A, B, X, and Y. You had a little graphic bit of artwork you'd put over your buttons. And I think there's about nine. I can't look over my shoulder because I'm all plugged in for sound now. But then that would guide you of what you needed to press. Kind of early tooltip. 
Yes, <laughs> exactly that, exactly that. But it's all in excellent condition. I'm so impressed. It's come in this state, and it's most have the manuals as well. And it's just such manuals. a, considering it's, yeah, consider it's early 80s, I'm just flabbergasted. It's in such good condition. So the previous owner slash owners must have really looked after it. And, of course, it's got a cartridge. Instant loading, that's going to be fun. But it probably will need to be modded to get at least composite output because it'll be standard RF out of the box. And RF signals do not survive very well with all the interference that we have nowadays, which you didn't have back then. So the pitch would really suffer, even though it wasn't particularly great at the time. So that's something I'll probably look at fairly soon. But yeah. I don't know what you guys know about an Intellivision or consoles from that era. What, what do you think? What do you know? I'd uh, heard of it, but that's as far <laughs> as my knowledge goes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of um it's kind of a round, wasn't it? Wasn't it like table what they called? It, it's like, really what what was it's really bro- blocky stuff, yeah. It's like really really uh yeah, so, so this would be just after like the, the <clears throat> Pong era where you beep, 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 beep. Yeah, I mean, they call those TV games, didn't they? For They were like TV games for like a year before real computers arrived or something. Is it one of those or is it slightly better than that? It's better. Well, the fact, if you imagine the early sort of Pong consoles, it was literally, you had five different game variations, but it was just the the console there was no way of plugging a cartridge in or anything like that there'd probably be a switch on the console you'd say do you want to play ping pong yes do you want to play football yes it's exactly the same game with an ever so minor tweet but that's football man do you want to play tennis it's exactly the same game with an ever so slightly tweet but it's tennis so that was back then but then of course there's cartridge based consoles which you know, this would originally come out in North America in sort of 1979 time. So cartridges and all that sort of thing. It was just really be starting to become a thing when people were starting to learn to blow in the cartridge, which apparently does absolutely nothing. <laughs> but still, this is a thing we were trained to do. If your cartridge doesn't work, you must blow on the cartridge. But that's another story. But yeah, it would just be sitting, I guess, after that sort of Pong era, and then this would be like the next phase where you could actually get a, a true separate game and it not, just not be a switch on the console itself to switch. It wasn't Philips, was it? As in, in television or in general? Uh, no, I mean, television, was that was that a Philips brand? I don't think so. This is where James Rush is at. No, it's Mattel. It's Mattel Electronics. Right. Yeah, yeah. That rings a bell. So apparently development began in 1977. It was released in North America in 1979. Came to the UK probably be about 81 time, which is the year I was born. But looking at some of the websites where they have like a comparison of this against the Atari 2600, which was phenomenally successful, the Intellivision generally has the better graphics. It does, apparently. (laughs) according to our friend, The Interweb. So I'm really excited in trying it, and I would have loved to have tried it before this podcast, but maybe you can see the excitement, at least, of the anticipation, and then in the next podcast you'll go, oh, it's all right, it's, um, 
So at least you've seen the excitement part before my dreams are blown and my rose-tinted glasses. But I'm hoping I'm going to be blown away by what this is capable of for that time. I don't think you are. Well, as long as I go with some kind of realistic vision of this, it's certainly not going to be... This is not Unreal Engine 5, folks. This is uh, some lines on a screen with very primitive sounds. But still, it's it's a nice thing to have in my collection. And like I say, it's in fantastic quality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing is that the actual games will be quite good fun. I hope so. I've got enough of them to try. It's not like I've only got one. There must be at least yeah, yeah. ten. I mean, it, it, with that kind of spec, there, there weren't anywhere to hide. Really, you, you know, if your game wasn't actually good fun to play, there was, you know, there was not like you were you were sort of distracting people with graphics or or, or whatever, which is the the the, the modern way. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, if we I fast think, forward, I think the games. Yeah, and sort of from from the whole of that era. Well, probably well into the in, in into the nineties as well. You know, sort of the they had to be good gameplay, didn't they? You know, yeah, yeah. Of, it was only with the I think the advent of of you know sort of better graphics in in early to mid nineties that that you could get away with with <laughs> you know sort of less quality gameplay. Yeah other things well i guess when it's a bit similar when you think of text-based adventures where it was literally just text on a screen and you were interacting and you were trying to find the correct verb to get something to happen and you were guessing 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 but it, you know there was nothing graphical on the screen for those at all it was just pure text but it still captured your imagination so you know the earliest consoles yes the graphics to our standards was being being incredibly primitive but still it was in its own way at least representing something and you could tell that was a ship and that was uh, that was something firing and you needed to protect this block thing over there this block with little things on the side oh that's a spider mate don't worry about it you need to get that that's a mushroom couldn't you tell <laughs> so yeah, it, the graphics are certainly going to be very different to anything we might play now. I mean, our mobile phones even 10 years ago will be wildly more powerful than what this thing can do as this big console. But, you know, it's of the time, of the era. It's a lovely thing to have the collection and the speech synthesis thing. I know it's going to be terrible. But the fact it even existed as a thing you could buy in the early 80s, and someone went out and brought it for 80 quid, Maybe they got in a sale later on. Who knows? But, you know, that is not a small proposition. It's not a small bit of change to go out and buy something like that. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think anything was in those days, was it? I mean, you look back to, you know, sort of um, like a Commodore 64. I mean, I remember buying the, the C64 system early 80s, and, and that was like 250 quid or something. You know, back which, then, that was an awful lot of money. If you if you sort so. of like scale it up, it it wasn't it wasn't that bad though, was it? I mean, the BBC Micro was four hundred. That that was a lot. Um, I mean, a ZX eighty one was what were they one hundred and twenty? I think. I mean, it weren't bad, was it? Considering you went from no computers whatsoever to and you for one hundred and twenty oh, quid, yes. you could buy one. I mean, I know it's I know the I know it's, it's inflation and all that, but um, someone should work it out what it actually would be. But it's it's still in that bad 
it was it was doable, wasn't it? You know, like four four. I remember four hundred for a BBC Micro wasn't, but I mean, my my beloved uh, Lynx was two two five, which which wasn't bad. You know, it wasn't mm. it wasn't unattainable. It's a marvelous time period, wasn't it? Where there was so much competition, which helped keep prices down, and there were so many aiming for a particular price point to be like the best value proposition for what you get. And Amstrad will come in and say, hey, look, don't buy this one machine. You can get this one with a full keyboard and green screen monitor for the same price. Now, do your best Alan Sugar impression you want at this point. But the point is, you know, there was so much competition, so much innovation, people trying to push that little bit further, trying to outdo each other. And it was all a very new era of time where people could have a computer in the home. Not a lot of businesses, I guess, in the UK had a you know a good computer set up, but now you could even get them in the home to do some sort of basic word documentation and whatnot. Yeah, <laughs> guess everyone was doing their accounts on it. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, I do find it fascinating. Fascinating how you know you go to the earliest consoles and there were cartridge base, which had the advantage of instant loading or i should say there was no real loading you turned it on the game was there ready to play and then we went from cartridge to tape now anyone sort of from america will be thinking tape we were more into the whole disc world but in terms of uk we seem to be more the we are the tape guys it was more affordable even if we had to sit waiting through these rather epileptic you know enduring <laughs> loading screens with a flickering going on screen rapidly as you waited five, ten minutes for your game to load. And then we went to floppy, which, again, certainly not instant loading. Bigger capacity, fine, but certainly not instant loading. And in, then that was your computer route. It was only the consoles that really stuck with cartridges, right up to you know the Nintendo 64, which was hanging on for sheer delight as much as it could, while other consoles were taking up the CD-ROM format, which you know did sort of put Nintendo in the corners, they couldn't keep up with that capacity on a cartridge-based system. But, you know, the loading was far quicker. So that is an interesting trend, isn't it, going from a cartridge, instant loading, and somehow advancing to go to slower methods of loading in that information. Well, it was about capacity, wasn't it? You could, you, the, the chips, the, the ROM chips were too expensive, so you couldn't, um, you couldn't keep up with the required um, memory needed. You know, you couldn't, uh, I mean, uh, you know, remember, Steve, when we did GBA Sword, when we had 8 meg, well, that's, Ooh, yeah. you know, that's a fraction of a, of a CD-ROM, isn't it? A fraction. We had to do a lot of squeezing to get that, didn't we? Well, they were trying to, I mean, they, they were going crazy, but they were they were trying to knock us down to 4 meg cause, just because of the price of the cartridge, you know. So, I mean, I mean that's why that's why cartridges died, because they were just too expensive um, when it came to any kind of usable capacity. In what kind of reality, though? I mean, 8 megabytes sounds like a ridiculously small amount of space for what was originally a CD-ROM game. How, where, where did the thinking go that, oh, yeah, 4 will work? Well, I mean, publishers always going, they're going to go back and do the maths, aren't they? They do the maths and they, they go, and it's too expensive, and they, they throw it back at you to see if, see if anything will give. Um, you know, we, we were probably doing the opposite. We, we were saying we want the next one up, which was probably 16, which I don't think any game ever came on um i think there was a 32 as well like theoretically but 
but they were just so expensive that you couldn't do it. I mean, most most GBA games were two meg. A lot of them were one meg. Some were two. Quite a lot were probably majority were two meg, or a few, a few more four meg. Uh, very few people got permission to to go up to eight because it was just um, so, you know the unit cost was so much more. I mean, they weren't happy. They kept pushing back, but I mean, there was there was just no way. It was just absolutely no way it could have been done. So it wasn't some shrewd marketing or sort of negotiating tactic to say we'd like sixteen. We need sixteen just to so they think eight was a good compromise. Or was it was it really well, that you know well, it, we well, can't it imagine both. doing it to eight? It was <laughs> both. both, really. Yeah. I mean, if they'd said, oh, all right, then 16, I mean, our, our lives would have been easier, wouldn't they? But, um, it, but it did, it did, it did make their, their calls for four to be much more unreasonable at the same time. So, yeah, it was a negotiation, I guess. So let's hypothesize. If they'd have said back then, here's 16, how much do you think the game might have changed? It, uh, probably not all that much. It just might have been slightly easier to do. Um, I mean, we might, have, we might, have, we might have had more animation in it, I guess, and a few more, a few more things would have. Would that was have the main thing around the side. Important. Yeah, we had to hack the the. Well, we did two things, didn't we? We hacked the um, the number of interactions and uh, away from the main the main route, and we um, cut cut the animations back quite hard. So I guess both of those things would have been slightly more relaxed. You know, we'd have never got all the voices or the or the music in still. So that 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 part of it wouldn't have changed. I guess you only needed one line in it anyway. Paris in the fall. <laughs> well, it was twelve thousand in, 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 in the in the in the base game. So, so you mean this four uh, K cartridge I've got right here wouldn't have been enough for something like that? Four K, not great sword, no. But you could do a lot in four K. I mean. Uh, I mean, ZX81 games were one, they did a lot of great things in 1K, didn't they? Six, 16 made a lot of difference. I mean, most of them started coming on because everyone had a 16K RAM pack. You could do a lot in 16K on, on a ZX81. Uh, in the same way, you can do a lot in 48K on a Spectrum. You know, it's, 48K was it was the right amount. You could, you could you could do a great game in 48K. You know. So, do you think greater capacity did open up? I mean, certainly for something like a point-and-click adventure game, having the talky version, the CD-ROM was an absolute necessity to store all that speech because it was the speech that probably took up more than anything for a lot of games. At, at the time, yeah, there was no other, there was no other, no other alternative. I mean, uh, well, I mean, if you look at Steel Sky, it was fourteen floppies, wasn't it? So. Steel Sky is a much smaller game than Broken Sword, so it would have been if it had been floppies, it would have been I don't know, what do you think, four times, Steve? It would have been thirty odd discs, probably. Thirty odd floppy discs. Imagine swapping them in and out as you go as you go back between Paris and Spain and Syria. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Disc disc number nineteen, please. Disc bad number nineteen. Well, I do remember, I mean, the only real point-and-click adventure game I really played with floppy disks was the Simon the Sorcerer, and I think that was about nine. And they did it in such a way, as I'm sure you did with Beneath the Steel Sky, they tried to make it as careful as possible that to reduce the amount of swapping that was required, which must have took some really good forward planning and thinking which 
uh, route the player is most likely to take. Depends on the design, doesn't it? I mean, if the design's linear and you literally progress from one thing to the next, then it's quite easy. Uh, I mean, we had a lot. To, we, I mean, we we were trying to be clever with our design, so you could go back up and down the levels in beneath still sky. In uh, yeah, beneath still sky. So um, you know that meant backtracking through the discs. It was quite difficult. It's quite difficult. Some of the sorcerer, yeah. Some of the sorcerer, it was you could explore and explore, and there was always bits where you were cut off and you had to complete a puzzle to get further. But you had the village, and then you could walk into the forest, and the forest was pretty vast. And you could go up the forest, you could down the forest, right, left, diagonally. There was loads of little bits to it. And I can't remember thinking, oh, there's another floppy disk change here. It wasn't that bad. It didn't really hurt me in any way. It only hurt me in that game when I got to, I think it was like floppy disk seven and was just two floppy disks away from completing the game. And the the floppy disk had corrupted. Oh, great. I know. So on floppy disk, I never completed the game. And that was on the Acorn Archimedes A3010. So it's one of the reasons I got the CD-ROM version for the PC. That was one the main reason I got a PC, folks, so I could play the talkie version of Sam the Sorcerer, because it the floppy version let me down on the Acorn Archimedes. And by the way, there was a CD version for the Acorn Archimedes, although apparently... The talky quality of that wasn't as good as the PC version or the Amiga version, which also had a CD version. It was just the way the Acorn was interpreting that audio recording. It wasn't quite making it as good as it could be. So and that's what got me a 486 PC in the end. I brought the game before I got the computer. I'm amazed there was a, an Acorn version, actually. There's quite a few uh, Amiga titles that did make it to the Acorn Uh Cannon fodder, which when Stu was on, we were talking about, that was always great on the Acorn. Wolfenstein 3D is probably one of the bigger shockers, that that was also on there. And then there was Lemmings, and then there was like the unique titles that Acorn had. I can't remember, it was Starfighter or something like that, which was pretty well known for that platform. But there's certainly quite a few crossing over, but you didn't have like the Mortal Kombats and things like that. <laughs> Yeah, it was very short-lived as well, wasn't it? It was, and it was such a great computer. I was the the outside kid who didn't have the Atari ST, didn't have the Amiga. I'm the one with the Acorn Archimedes. But screw everybody else, because this was the one that helped with the ARM revolution, the RISC chip. So that, that's my claim to fame, to having that computer back in the day. There's nothing wrong with being different, James. No, absolutely not. But although I would have liked an Amiga. I mean, I was quite lucky. My best friend who lived over the road had an Amiga 500. No, no, sorry. I take it back. It was Amiga A600. So that was the more compact version without the numeric keys on the side. And we did have a lot of fun on that. But I did love my Acorn. And it was so advantageous because my school, which would have been, what, 1996 time? hadn't quite gone into the PC revolution just yet, and they'd got Acorn Archimedes. So when I went into IIT, which I thought, oh, this is very exciting, for its half a GCSE, it wasn't, IT wasn't qualified as a full GCSE back then, it was half a GCSE. But one of the first questions the teacher asked in our very first lesson was, can anyone tell me what the names of the mouse buttons are on this computer? 
And I'm thinking, how would anyone really know that unless you'd ever use one? So I just put my hand up and went, yep, yeah, select, menu, adjust. And he went, I know I'm not going to have any problems with you, James. And that's the that's all I can remember from that school in terms of IT. <laughs> so whatever else he taught <laughs> yeah, whatever else he taught me in IT, I'm sure it was very valuable, but that's all I can remember him going, I can see I'm not having any problems with you, James, just because I know it's select many engineers. I think if the teacher of the IT class needs some, needs just someone to press the mouse buttons, then it's it's maybe not going to be the most advanced uh, <laughs> IT course ever ever constructed, is it? Yeah, but I was very jealous because he had a computer with a hard drive, which at the time, what's this hard drive? It stores so many different applications and games on it. This is insane. Floppy disk, forget it. He's got a hard drive. I never saw CD-ROM in the wild, though. That was definitely a rarity. And there was even a chap who lived fairly local who specialised in sort of Acorn computers, like selling the, the software and the hardware and fixing them up. And even he, when I said, I want the CD-ROM drive, because, again, I was thinking Simon the Sorcerer. He said, why do you want one of those for? I thought, well, I want to play this game. It's got talking in it. Surely you want a hard drive first. Everything will load fast. You can store more stuff. No, I want a, I want a CD-ROM drive. <laughs> he, he just couldn't understand. I think this was another reason I got a PC, folks. <laughs> he was probably right. He, well, yeah, in hindsight, he probably was right. But still, you know, I, I was young. I wanted to play Simon the Source with a full talkie edition. And I'm sure those who, I mean, Beneath the Still Sky is a good example there. So you could have got the floppy disk version, which had no talking in it. But you could have also got the CD-ROM version with talking in it. I wonder how the sales split was on that, because it was still very new to have CD-ROM drives around that time. Well, the CD came, version came a bit later, didn't it, Steve? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, wasn't it the... It was the CD, well, they, they paid us to do CD32, didn't they? Yeah, ah. that's it. Um, so that was literally the first version that had the talkie in it then? It was yeah. one of the first talking games, to be honest. Right, okay. That, that was its claim to fame. It was the first, um, I mean, there were there might, there would have been others, but it, it was the first, you know, it, it was a proper game with lots and lots and lots of uh, speech in it. And it was one of the, I think it, it, I mean, we always thought it was the first. It probably, I mean, someone will prove that wrong, but it, it wasn't far off. Well, it, it certainly wasn't something that was planned, was it, in, in development? I mean, no, no. We just kind of like release the the floppy version, and then it was kind of like, oh, you know, sort of perhaps this, this is something that we can do. And I can't remember the how that came about, but it was um, it was certainly something, you know, sort of very much an a, not an afterthought, but you know, after planning, if you like. Uh, but um, I mean, we had a nightmare with the with the voices. I don't know if you remember, Tom. They the sent us all these DAP tapes, and we had to actually cut them up in the office. Oh, right. You know, the, there was no automatic systems back then to, to you know, cut them up and top and tail them and, and, and stuff. So we had to do it all by hand. And I went through most of them and did them. And then, <laughs> and then they decided they wanted to re-record some of the voices. <laughs> So oh, no. we, uh, I think, I think Virgin actually took on the task of, of, you know, cutting the newer ones up, but it was, it so, was a lot yeah. of work. 
So when you say cutting it up, what do you, you actually mean there? What was the actual physical just, process for that? It was just the, you know, all the lines were recorded onto, onto a series of DAP tapes, you know, like one after another. Yep. So then we had to kind of get them onto the computer um, and cut them up into the, the, un, the, the separate individual lines and give them a, a, a reference number or whatever, it, however we name them. So that the, 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 they could, you know, sort of the wood play at the same time as the text line was displayed. You know, so it, it wasn't like nowadays you go into a studio and, you know, sort of like you, you're pressing buttons to key every, you know, each line and you can optimize them in, in all sorts of cool ways and all this kind of thing. You know, we just given these, given these DAP tips until to, <laughs> to cut them up. And would that have had all the outtakes as well and all the different variations of the same line? Um... I don't really Something remember many variations, and, and certainly not any outtakes that I remember. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you didn't hear the director in the corner, louder, he's in distress, or anything like that. It was just the pure voice. Yeah, yeah. But how did that feel, putting a voice to a game where originally it was just reading text on the screen as they spoke? Did it feel like it was somehow changing the nature of the game, or did you think it added a tangible benefit? Well, the games, I mean, I talked about this quite a lot, and the, ga the games really only ever came to life when, on the day you put the voices in. You know, when, when you know you have a broken sword, and, and, and it's voiceless right until the end, to be honest, because you, you, you can't record until everything's done so and, and frozen to the point where it's never, ever going to change again. So, in effect, you have a, you have a final game in terms of gameplay before you can record. Uh, so, you know, you go through 99% of development uh, on, on a text-based game, and then on that, on that fateful day when the, the, the voices go in, it, it pops into life right at the end. Last, yeah. last possible minute. It's very, think, very interesting. Yeah, I think it was it was quite significant with with Beneath Steel Sky, um, because although you know sort of the, the the text had been written with you know a lot, a lot of humour in mind, suddenly you get all these you know great characters coming through even even more with with these recorded voices, you know, and some of them were just brilliant. Um, in, in fact, most of them were really, you know. And there's such variety of accents and all this kind of thing, you know, sort of like Lamb with his Yorkshire accent, and then there was, you know, sort of uh, Welsh accents and Brummy accents and all sorts. And it was just, it was just, you know, sort of this rich melee of, of, of voices. Was that expected though? I mean, were they looking for characters? We're looking for a Brummy. It's got to be a Brummy, otherwise it's not going to be this character. Or was that just like you listen to that dat tape one day and go, oh? Okay, he's a brummie. <laughs> I, I think yeah. it is what happens when you have like a very small number of slightly drunk actors, uh, <laughs> and, and, and the way they're going to do different characters is to change the accent. <laughs> I think that's I think that's the near the truth of it. So, yeah, do you I think, think? I think you know, sort of, it was quite common, you know, sort of in in the early days of. of game voice recording to use a few actors and have them do different voices. You know, sort of, and often they became silly as a result of that. I think that Steel Sky actually, I think the quality is quite high in in, in respect to a lot of other games that, that were just silly. Well, that reminds me of Discworld because that had 
some really famous actors involved with that production. So, for example, um, is it Bill Pertry? It was Wurzel Gummidge. And John. Tony Robinson, you know, who is still alive and kicking, probably best known for Time Team and Baldrick from Blackadder. He was in it. Um, Eric Idle, who's sort of Monty Python fame. So Eric Idle was rinse rinned, but then Tony Robinson would have not just done one character voice, he would have done several spread throughout the game. Same for Bill Pertry and uh, uh, is it Rob Brydon? I think he was a few voices in it as well. So yeah, there's well, he, a, could, he could do a few voices. He can he? do a few voices, that's for sure. <laughs> but, you know, they spread that out to make sure they got <laughs> as many characters to, filled by those three actors. And I think it was just Eric Idle who did Rent I don't think he did any other characters in that game because it's so distinctive. You know, it's Eric Idle just by <laughs> listening to him talk. But um, in terms of atmospherics then, do you think having like Broken Sword 1, you would have then heard the music that was created lovingly for it. You would have heard the, the voice cast. Do you think when Broken Sword 2 came about that helped you set in your mind that you hadn't got the dialogue finished yet, even if you were just seeing the text of it? You then heard George Stobart, and that kind of influenced some of those decisions and animations and storyboarding and whatever else. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it, it, we were familiar with the main characters. So, I mean, we, we, we knew how to handle them, I guess. Um you know, it, it was it was still waiting for the the real voices in terms of the the, the, the pop, you know, to, to bring it to life. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, yes and no. From from a design point of view, it was it it it, it was clearer what the characters would do and what they'd be like. Um, but the actual physical manifestation of the, of them in the game didn't didn't really happen until the voices went in as well. You know, I think. Would you agree, Steve? I think that that. I mean, I think a lot of development is is really about you know sort of pulling together all these different resources, isn't it? You know, you know, you've got so you've got this this engine to create. You've got the you know kind of like the tools that you need to create in order that the artists and writers and implementers and and everybody can you know put this game together. And a lot of the time, you're not really thinking about the characters as such. <laughs> you know, it's it's only when you you start getting it much more complete. You know, the the characters are definitely talking to each other and and so on. You can see how the lines are coming through. You know, sort of. And having a previous game with voices does help. I mean, it certainly helps you write those characters, or you know, the characters that are coming back better. You know, like like George and Nico and stuff. I mean, you know, sort of like when I was writing on Broken Sword 3, um, I went back to the first one for to to en ensure I had, had the voice of George in my head and the voice of Nico, even though we weren't using the same actress. Um, you know, sort of, I still think of Nico as being for the Nico from Broken Sword 1. Uh, you know, sort of... And, and it just helps that, you know, and on other projects that I've worked on, you know, if, if there's been a, you know, a second one in the series, you know, sort of having established the first one just, just gives you, you know, sort of an ease of writing for those characters, um, knowing that, that they've been established. 
Makes sense to me. So what was the deal behind the voice change in Nico? Was that just scheduling or was it something else? I'm not entirely sure. Availability, I think. Yeah. I would think. I mean, there was no reason not to not to have... Who did the first one? Was it Hazel did the first one? Yeah. I think Hazel did the first one. There was no reason not to have her do the second. I mean, I'm sure she was asked to do it. And then she was doing something else or didn't want to do it or something. But, I mean, it. yeah, I mean, there was never a problem with it. So we would have, we, we would, we would have asked her, I'm sure. I'm guessing it couldn't have been a problem in any way because she came back later for the director's cut, which had the extended bit at the start with her. Yeah. It was all, it was all Nico at the start. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at one point she was going to do Grand Sword Five, um, and, and, and it didn't work out for for similar reasons, you know. But she she uh, she, she was she was hanging around in the office for a bit because um, she was going to do the voices, you know. So uh, I think she did. Yeah, she did. She actually did Nico in the in the Kickstarter film. So she does actually appear in Grand Sword Five in a roundabout sort of way. So um, it's just it's just it's just logistics, I think. One of the problems that we, we often get in games is that you don't know exactly when you're going, going to be able to lock down the text and do the recording. I mean, you have a kind of aim, or oh, we're aiming for the end of October, say, or something like this. Um, but it's probably not until a few weeks before that you start to kind of like be able to say, oh, yeah, it's definitely the last week in October or what have you. Um, and it might be too short notice for some of the the actors, particularly if the the you know getting a lot of voice work. Yeah, I mean when we I did Rock Sword yeah. Three, Rolf was actually um, appearing on stage in in oh grief Chicago was it stage production of Chicago. <laughs> so he was he was recording during the day with us, and then going off to. <laughs> to perform on stage in the evening. God, he, his voice must have been, you know, sort of absolutely worn out by the end of that fortnight. So what is the general sort of turnaround time for? You've locked in the dialogue. You know exactly what the characters need to say. How long do you usually have to wait before it comes back in some sort of form you can use? These days, it's it's days. It literally is. You know, because they're so, you know, the, the studios are so optimised to deliver that often they, they can be delivering like if they've done you've done one day's recording and then an engineer somewhere will be will kind of oversee that and be making sure all the all the samples are correctly numbered and stuff like this and and then i know some studios actually feed it back into their system so if there's any like you might have you might record one actor at a time so the actor's lines can then be fed in to the other actors, you know, sort of for the rest of the production. So they're feeding in those lines to cue them in. <laughs> so so if you're the first one to record, you know, you don't get any of that direct direct feed. But but others do, you know. So it's 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 very clever what they're doing in studios these days. It must be very hard to sort of react or act to nothing. Because if you're just seeing the printed text on a page, and I'm sure that there's probably some direction on then what's happening at the time. and well, not, not just that. I mean, you will get, I mean, you'll get 
somebody feeding the lines, you know, sort of either the, the, you know, the voice director or, or somebody else. I mean, I've done it myself when I've been in the studio just, just to give the, the actor, you know, sort of a, the right cue, you know, and it, it kind of creates a flow and an energy and stuff like this that, that you wouldn't get if they were just reading them dry. Does that mean you were doing your full-on Shakespeare there, then, Steve? To no, get the very I'm best just, out of the voice the actors. <laughs> you ever tried it, Steve? It's really difficult. Well, the acting to act, to actually act. Yeah, I mean, I've always. I, I was in a couple of things at school. Um, <laughs> one of which was uh, the Imaginary Invalid by oh god, Miles Moliere or something. Moliere, can't remember his first name. But anyway, it was a French thing that was translated into English and we did it. <clears throat> and I had a sort of a reasonably sub substantial role and it was, <laughs> you know, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> but I wouldn't call myself an actor. You'd think, you'd think it'd be easy, wouldn't you? But uh, when we did the Kickstarter video for Broken Sword 5, I mean, we were, we were, I mean, we, we, we had that script that, that, so there was George who was going to be, talking to his virtual George, obviously, and talking to real Charles. So Charles had to do his, he had to do his lines and had them recorded, but so he needed prompting. So like I had to go at doing the, the George lines and it was just pitifully bad. How like you'd, you'd think it'd be easy to, to do it properly, but you just, just couldn't make it work. It was like, holy, you know, why, why doesn't this work? Why can't I act? Why, it, it must be easy, but it's not. It's like when you no. try it, it's really difficult. No. And a lot, of, a lot of people think that, you know, sort of acting is just about putting on a silly voice or, or an angry voice or, or something like this, and it, it's just not. I mean, a lot of good actors, particularly voice actors, you know, like, like in games, we don't see the actor themselves. You know, we see, we see you know, these avatars that are, are talking with these actors' voices. So they have to put quite a lot over, you know, in the voice because we don't have the subtlety of facial expressions. We don't have, you know, sort of the subtleties of, of body language in, in most games. And so, you know, that that voice has got to carry an awful lot. Um, but a lot of them have very rich voices of, as well as kind of almost, you know, sort of multiple layers, you know, going on, you know, that make the rest of us sound quite dull in comparison. Or at least myself, I, I think... You know, but they, you know, it's like Rolf. I mean, you take Rolf and and how he how easily he does the, um, the 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 George voice, and he just slips into it, and he can just go almost all day and and hardly make any mistakes because he can get into that character, and and that is a major part of it is is getting into the character and and understanding why he says things in a certain way and and, and such. And it, it is, it's not an easy thing. I mean, you know, most actors have gone through an awful lot of training to get to where they are, you know. So, yeah. so, so you know, if, if, if you don't think you're very good, it's because you haven't gone through that, you know, sort of, and it's, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with not being good at something if you haven't had the training. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you're telling me, Tony, out of all the point and click adventures you've been involved with, that I've had talking. There's not a single line of dialogue featuring your voice. No, no. I've been thinking about this game I'm writing at the moment. Though. It's going to have a lot. Of, it's going to have a lot of voicing in it. 
um, a lot of speech in it, and it'd be nice to um, record it. I mean, if there's a budget um, from somewhere, it'd be good to record it. But but how to do that, or who's going to do it, or and, and could I do could I do one of the roles, and maybe I could do one of the roles. But could I? You know, uh, I don't know. Be interesting to try it. It was. I'm quite, I'm quite interested in the idea of acting, but I mean, I've tried. As I say, I've tried it off camera and couldn't do it at all. But it, it, it feels like something that's bugging me now. I want to kind of learn. <laughs> I want to learn about. Apparently, if you're writing characters, it's a good. It's a good thing to um, to understand about acting. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, certainly. You know, I mean, one of the biggest things that they, they recommend when you're if you're writing dialogue is to read your dialogue out loud. You know, sort of because that's when you'll pick up whether the, you know, whether the lines are um, sound right, sound natural, or or if you've got, or if they're just going to be awkward for the actors to to say. Because if you have a lot of of uh, lines with that are very sibilant, you know, a lot of, of a lot of s's, you know, then they're going to fall over those kind of things. So you have to kind of make adjustments to how the lines are going to be. Right, you know, sort of, and and I suppose in one sense, with Steel Sky, you weren't thinking like that because you, all you were thinking, or you know, like Dave Cummings, who 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 wrote the original lines. I mean, he would have, he would have just written them knowing that they were going to be displayed on screen as text. You know, sort of, he weren't, he wasn't thinking about you know writing them for performance. Yet, when Broken Sword came along, we knew that we would be recording them at some point. So he will have approached it slightly differently, I, I presume. Um, so so it's kind of, I don't know, I, I always think, you know, sort of, I, I always try and put it in my head that, that, yes, an actor is going to be speaking these lines, you know, sort of try and make them not simple, but clear. You know, you, you don't want, you don't want the actors, you know, sort of stopping every every line and going, "What does this actually mean?" <laughs> because it breaks up the flow, you know. So, okay, Tony, we haven't got any lines of dialogue. We're main your new game, but we do. You do have a claim to fame in the game. So there is in Broken Sword one a warrior safe. There is. Have you got in any the- other sort of Easter eggs you've snuck in there with warrior in it, or is that was that the only one? Uh, there's well, there's quite a few Easter eggs across all the games, I suppose. A lot of them, which I were, were done by me. Um, there's one in, I think there's one in. There's, there's the spooky room in Director's Cut as well, where you look for a window and you see a sort of montage of bits and bobs. Uh, I did that one. There's all sorts of crap in there. All sorts of crap. This is how we define Easter eggs. <laughs> throw some crap in you. Yeah. Bonus yeah, I think content, I believe, is the term you're looking for. <laughs> I think my original Obsidian sprite is actually in the director's cut, hidden away through that through that um, keyhole thing. Yeah, there's all, yeah, there's, yeah, all sorts about, in there. What about you, Steve? What did you s- sneak in over the years where you thought, oh, maybe no one will notice this? I'll just stick this in. Was there anything you've got um, a claim to fame for? I tend to to kind of like go for more subtle things in the in the text. I might make a, a, a reference to. A book or, a, or or another game, but in a very subtle way, you know, sort of. It might just be something that I know, <laughs> and nobody's ever come back and said, 
Ah, I saw that. Yeah, quite like that. <laughs> so so the, I'm probably being too subtle. <laughs> but um, actually, there's there's yeah. that eighty reference guide uh, Easter egg in in the director's cut. That was that's spoken lines of text that I wrote as well. Yay! I forgot about that. So yes, yeah, I wrote some dialogue. I wrote some dialogue. It's just one step away from actually speaking it yourself. Yep. If not, we'll just use this voice synthesizer module from the early 80s and see how that goes instead. Well, a lot of these characters are going to be robots, so it's probably going to be spot on for that, yeah. I'll get recording it. (laughs) Come on, James. I can't give it any lines myself. That's the only problem. That would be quite cool, though, wouldn't it? Going back and using, using that old tech to to create one of the voices for the game that would be really cool they do that a lot in music don't they They, they're digging out 70s moogs and things to get the uh to get the right warmth of sound and stuff james will know about all that stuff oh yes oh absolutely no um is it vocoders or something like that they use i mean if the keyboard behind me you can plug in a microphone and uh alter the pitch by whatever you're playing or add a harmony so I'm just, I have to say, I'm not much of a singer. My wife would disagree, but I'm going to stick with this line. I'm not much of a singer. And you, I would sing one note, and then I'd play a chord on the keyboard, and then the keyboard would then create that as a harmony. I mean, my goodness. Now, if you ask me, don't worry, Tony, if you're ever going to say, James, can you record me some dialogue for a game? I'm not going to go all operatic on you. I've always wanted to give this a go, and fully enough, probably about a year ago. I thought about auditioning for a game, but it was a bit, probably a really difficult one to start with. It was like from an ethereal character. It was more like a spirit. And I was, I was trying to, th- I think I was overthinking because I wasn't just thinking I've got to do my voice. It sounds ethereal. I've got to maybe add some special effects, a layer on the top of it, which is a, a skill in itself to then get that right. So I didn't send it in the end. But I also remember years years ago before monkey island officially had a talkie track because that was certainly years and years later monkey island was forever text on the screen until they did like an official sort of i don't think they called it a remaster as such but it came back with newer graphics where you could switch between the new and the old and you could have a talkie version but before that became a thing there was like a fan project where they were saying please can you audition for all these different characters I didn't want to be a pirate. I don't think I could pull off a pirate voice. And it sort of, if you ask me to do my normal voice, I think I'd be okay because I know I could stay with that normal voice. But if you ask me to do an accent, I would drift into something else entirely, <laughs> and it becomes something else. So, but there was a dog, <laughs> and I auditioned for the dog, and I'm semi-convinced if. The talkie version officially didn't get announced around this same time. I might have been the dog in the unofficial fan version of this. Second so dog. You could have heard me barking. And all that stuff. Obviously, I did a lot more effort into it than that. But, you know, I was so close. And I thought, this is, I could be in a game. I could be in a game. And it didn't happen. I Damn think you, we- official. <laughs> Yeah, you're talking about pirates there. I mean, you know, sort of a lot of a lot of you know people used to do, you know that same you know sort of like oh, army kind of, and that's what I want to do. Pirate voice, 
And it's, you know, sort of, because I had a pirate character in So Blonde, um, and he was obviously the bad guy of the piece. Um, oh. And he was called One Eye, and funny little character he was. Uh, I just didn't want that traditional pirate voice. So I actually um, talked to the to one of the actors when we were auditioning, you know, actors for the voices. I said, I just don't want a traditional pirate voice for this. And he had a bit of a think and he said, what if we, you know, what if I do a, a, a voice that's a bit, you know, Richard Burton like, um, I mean, he didn't, you know, kind of like take off Richard Burton, but he kind of added that kind of, it was influence and, 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 and subtleties. And it just worked so well. It was it was perfect for the for the part um, because you've got this funny little little character, one eye and a, and a wooden leg, <laughs> doing this quite serious Richard Burton style voice. And it was it was perfect. So so are. sometimes <laughs> the actors just bring something that that you know kind of you would never have thought of um, just from the writing alone. Well, I'm glad you didn't go just for the stereotypical pirate, which I think was influenced essentially by a film, wasn't it? There was one film where this actor did that kind of and all that it business. Was, and then everything, every pirate then had to be. Arr. It was Treasure Island. and Yes, that's it. Yeah. And Robert Newton, who played Long John Silver, he put on that voice. And every, everybody's associated it with pirates ever since. Because they all came from like. Cornwall, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. That's what you need in a game. Someone from Cornwall giving directions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even gonna attempt it, don't worry, I'm not gonna do the accent. I'll, I'll just upset people. <laughs> and I won't pull it off faithfully anyway. But yeah, I'm I'm glad you didn't go the stereotypical route and you're trying something different because one eye false leg. You know that's that's pirate territory right there. But then the voice was different. Good on you, Steve. Good on you. You broke the trend. So in your game, Tony, um, what kind of dialects can we expect? Uh, I think East Yorkshire. <laughs> East Yorkshire. <laughs> that's me out then. Yeah, get some, get some nice whole people in there. You know, sort of. Uh, no, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't want any Nottingham in there then unfortunately you're out my duck yeah. are you from Nottingham James originally yeah spent most of my life there yeah so I've probably got a Nottingham twang in there somewhere but in terms I don't think I have a heavy dialect there may be certain words that you can maybe pick up a sort of Midlands type accent, but I don't think I'm sort of heavily thick in any accent. Maybe some people might say I'm heavily thick, but that's another conversation altogether. But in terms of accents, no. I've, maybe that's an advantage. Maybe it's more neutral. Maybe it lends itself. Maybe I need to sell my voice apparatus, Mr. Warner. To, maybe I need to audition for this fantastic game. And then you say, James, I need it very robotic. Depends if you can be a robot or not, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Are they evil robots? Are they friendly robots? Oh, what, they... Give, give me my definition of roboticness. Is it Skynet or is it something a little bit more friendly? Is it Mac OS? 
it's, I don't know, I think, um, I put me on the spot now. <laughs> what is my motivation? <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of swearing. Oh, really? A robotic yeah. swear, okay. Everybody swears, yeah. Even robots. Effing yeah. and blinding, you wouldn't believe like what robots off. are like. Rust off. Yeah, a lot of love. There's a lot of that, a lot of offs. So is this for comedic effect? Or is it just because these are very serious robots that have attitude? Yeah, they're they're just they're just people people don't realise that robots swear. Why wouldn't they, you know? Maybe one of these robots has a glitch though, so it's not actually swearing, it's something else. Think back to Hello Hello Gentlemen, where there was a policeman <laughs> who said his French was very good, but his, it was all wrong. But it was all said in English, but you could tell he was trying to do French. It's very bizarre. Unless you've watched the program, it won't make any sense whatsoever. But maybe your robots need to have, or at least the one that swears a lot, has a glitch. So all the swearing, well, they, we know it's swearing, but it isn't quite swearing. It's done in a clever way. Like a kind of technical Tourette's. <laughs> yes. Why not? Do you remember um, uh, what was it? The the comedy thing, Red Dwarf, where the where the he, he couldn't actually swear, could he? That was a, that was actually quite funny. Yeah. Because he, he just couldn't do it. He was like, it's a nice it's a nice idea. Hence, smeg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was clever that. But you remember also to go back even further. Um, I mean, Blake Seven. Uh, all I think all the robots in Blake Seven were extremely posh, weren't they? They were they were proper Shakespearean <laughs> RP robots. Every single one of them. Yeah. Well, Blake Blake himself was a very um, you know sort of well well known theatrical actor, wasn't he? And yeah, and yeah. he left after about was it the first series or something? He, he did. Yeah. yeah. He and came back later, didn't he? I think he. he he didn't like it and, and cleared off. And, and so they killed themselves Blake Seven, even though Blake had gone. <laughs> yeah, and there weren't even seven. <laughs> but yeah, I think it, people is a lesson. I think there was a lot of, yeah. um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, jobs for friends, wasn't there, in some of these productions? Yeah. It was very cheap as well, very cheap. Yeah, some of the acting was awful. It was, wasn't it? I mean, we watched some of it recently, and I, was, I mean, I remembered it from being a kid, and like I thought it was the best thing ever. And you, and you go back and watch it, and you're going, "My God, this is this is this should be cut to at least half the length." And the, and the yeah. acting was, I mean, the, it was just awful. And uh, the funny thing, thing about bad acting is, you, you look at it and you and you can't understand what's bad about it. Like you couldn't tell them what to do to not act badly, but you can you can spot it a mile off. Yeah. It's a funny thing. Yeah. I think a lot I of it because you don't you don't see it these days. You watch you watch, you pick anything on Netflix or BBC or anything like that, put it on, and I mean it might be badly written or or not a great series or whatever. But you, I mean there's a, there's a base there's a baseline of acting ability now that that's always reasonably good. You know. Uh, I've had to Google it, and amazingly, I found it. There was a series called Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, and I remember watching this when I was young. But they must have had severe budget problems. So it was basically um, a British private detective who is, I think it was his partner had died, but came back as a ghost. 
and he would then help him solve all these sort of detective required plots but more often than not the guy who was living would get caught and put in a basement and you could guarantee this basement was pretty much the same basement on every episode and this is how they save money <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah actually remade it didn't they with um reeves and mortimer yes they did yeah <laughs> that was quite brief wasn't it in the end i didn't i didn't watch any of the reeves and mortimer ones because <laughs> i didn't think the original premise was very good <laughs> all you need is a basement and there you've got your plot that was fine yeah yeah when i was when i was young i i used to really love a series called ufo i thought it was brilliant and and there were some good stories in it but again the acting was was quite dire at times. The costumes were a bit rubbish, <laughs> but it was uh, it was you know sort of Jer Jerry Anderson production. But instead of using puppets, he used live actors. Wow. Um, I think they'd have been better off with a puppet. <laughs> well, someone told him there were no strings attached. Uh, <laughs> but proper, the, uh, proper wooden acting. Oh, jeez. Yeah. We're going. We're going to do a second series because they did like a fair series of like twenty six episodes, and that's all they ever did. But apparently, they had plans to do a second one, and then due to issues, it sort of like morphed into Space Nineteen Ninety Nine, which I hated. <laughs> oh dear! I never liked it. I don't know what they. I don't know what the fuss is about. And on I, that. And on that positive note, ladies and gentlemen, this is the end of Game and Gadget Podcast number 26. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time. Thank you to Tony and Steve for joining us. And we'll see you in the next Game and Gadget Podcast. <laughs>